Good evening, and welcome to the Matthew Danko Podcast. Don't call it that. I'm your host, Matthew Danko. Now, for a lot of people out there, Whovians in particular, those who like Doctor Who, today was a very important day, a very special day, um, where we find out, or where we found out, who the 12th Doctor will be. Now, for all of those who don't want anything spoiled, please tune out now. If you're like me, you didn't want to know until that moment where Matt Smith actually regenerated in the Christmas episode. However, if you're also like me, the minute you log on to Facebook, 50 million pictures of who the new Doctor will be, along with his name, will pop up and everything will be spoiled. At the beginning of the day, I knew... I mean, ever since it was announced that they would reveal who the 12th Doctor would be today, I knew I didn't want to know, but I knew I would instantly know, essentially. I didn't even... (sighs) The minute I clicked on Facebook, because I was still logged in, literally, the first five stories in my newsfeed were the 12th Doctor, giant pictures of them. And it's my own fault for following Doctor Who on Facebook, but for a person who doesn't like spoilers, that, that was a... That was a dumb move on my part to not be like, I'm not going to follow them for a few days or until the the Christmas episode, but whatever. So if you're not, if you don't want to know, again, tune out now. Spoilers for anybody who doesn't want to know. But the new Doctor, the 12th Doctor, is Peter Capaldi. Whether or not I'm pronouncing his last name right, I'm sorry, but... If you do watch Doctor Who and you don't know who he is or haven't seen him act before, just watch The Fires in Pompeii and you'll see him act. That episode with Donna and the Tenth Doctor in Pompeii. Volcano Day, if you will. Um, Yeah, he's the father of that family that they interact with so much. So, and I'm not saying that with hostility. I know it might sound like I'm... Like, what the fuck is this shit? They're using the same actor again? What is this? I thought this was Doctor Who. Not... Insert pun, joke, whatever. But it's not uncommon for Doc the Doctor Who universe to use the same actors to play different characters. I mean, in that episode alone, you have um, Karen Gillian playing a soothsayer and then she becomes Amy Pond later with the Leaven. And then in the Ninth Ninth Doctor's first series, his only series, you have um, the episode with Charles Dickens in Cardiff. Um, I can't remember the title of the episode, but essentially the the Gwyneth that can see into the future, the girl who uh, works in the it's a funeral home. That can yeah she can see into the future. Um, she later becomes Gwen from Torchwood and also in uh, the Journey's End. And they have all their explanations for like using the same actress or actor like in in the Journey's End when they when the tenth Doctor and Rose recognize Gwen. They're like, are you from an old Cardiff family? And and uh, 
he is like, ah, oh, spatial genetic multiplicity, which, and I'm going to read off what it means. It's it's not a blood relationship. It's an effect of the time rift, causing physical features to echo and repeat across the space-time area around the rift. So do with that information what you will. But, and also the episode where uh, it's it's. It might be Doomsday, or it might be the one before Doomsday. Um, Freema Agman, who plays Marsh Martha Jones, Marsha Jones, Martha Jones. Um, she's in that episode. She becomes a victim of the Cybermen with those little Bluetooth headsets. Um, and then later, when the Tenth Doctor meets. Martha Jones. Martha's like, I had a cousin who was taken down by aliens or something like that. Completely explaining why she was already in an episode of Doctor Who. So it's not uncommon, and I'm sure there are tons more that I'm missing, but my point is it's not uncommon for them to recycle actors because when they find an actor they like or they stand out in that particular episode, they use them or, you know, they just audition and blow away people's minds for um, for the whatever part they're trying out for. How he became the 12th Doctor, Peter Capaldi, I don't know. Maybe he was really liked in that episode. I'd have to rewatch it. I mean, not that he's a bad actor at all. I'm just saying. I... I mean, if, with every regeneration, now I've... I've started watching Doctor Who, not even 2005, but much later. It was probably five years ago from now. Um, like, the first episode I saw was bits and pieces with David Tennant and Donna. So that's series four. And then I was like, well, I'm not one to watch the end before I watch the beginning. So I went back and I started with nine. And I, I just fell in love with the show. I mean, I really love David Tennant, but I was like, I'm going to have to really be patient until I get there. And I was expecting a few seasons with Christopher Eccleston before I got to David Tennant. Fortunately for me, unfortunately for Nine, um, he only lasted one series. So I got to watch David Tennant right away. And, I mean, Ten, like most people, is my favorite Doctor. Not just because he's a brilliant actor who brought so much to that character, in my opinion. I mean, there are people who shit on Ten. Why, I don't know. Especially because they're so diehard fans of others, like Colin Baker or Peter Davison. Which, granted, they without them, there would be no Ten. I mean, essentially, without William Hartnell, there would be none of the others. So, like, literally, like physically either in the terms of the show but not only is he an amazing actor who who has so much i guess a range of emotions i mean there's an episode i think it's journey's end where david Tennant's in the tardis with donna i mean it would have to be the journey's end with donna jack and rose and he's about to go out to meet davros or see Davros again, rather, because they've met before, right? So he turns to each one of them and says, you were brilliant. Kind of like how 
Eccleston was like, just so you know, I mean, paraphrasing, sure, just so you know, you were fantastic. And you know something, so was I. But, I mean, paraphrasing, and I'm not really trying to do his voice, trust me, so, if the two people out there, if my future version who's listening to this podcast is, is shitting on me right now, because I can't do a Christopher Eccleston voice. I'm sorry for everyone else who thinks I can't. I don't apologize to you, but I really wasn't trying. Anyway, maybe by then, my future self can do a Christopher Eccleston voice. And if you can't, maybe I should be shitting on you. But this is no time and place for me to get into a fight with my future self. So I'm sorry, everyone. Anyways... So David Tennant turns to Jack, Rose, and Donna and says, You were brilliant. But he says it three times, almost the same way, and each time there's some, there's a different meaning behind it. Now with the same line, saying it back to back, like, I don't know, not many actors probably can do that, but he just, there's there was so much meaning in each one, and it was all different. And he has that ability to be in one moment be funny and, and lovable and sad and terrifying all in that same moment no matter what he's doing he can just be all those things and he can switch from being super energetic to being completely mad and, and angry and it's just I don't know he had the perfect in my opinion he had the perfect balance of of what the doctor needs because the doctor has seen a lot he's I mean in David Tennant time he was 903 years old he had seen so much shit and he's going to keep continuing to see so much shit that you, you would think he would have you know he'd become tired he's old he might look young but he's super old and and he he's just an amazing character the doctor himself david tennant just brought him to life like not only that but David Tennant's life is a little Doctor Who-ish, if you will, because for those of you who do know, you know that he married Georgia Moffat. And for those of you who don't know, I'm going to break it down right now. Okay. Now, I read the biography of David Tennant. Um, I think it's called uh, A Life in Time and Space. Something along those lines. It's not an autobiography, but it's just a lot of background information about the guy. And my girlfriend bought it for me. So it was awesome. I started reading it. I finished it a long time ago. And there's a part in there where it's talking about how David Tennant grew up watching the show. And how his favorite doctor was Peter Davison. The fifth doctor. So he grew up watching the show, and he always wanted to be, like, first of all, Doctor Who is what got him into acting. But he didn't want to be the actor who played the Doctor. He wanted to be the Doctor himself. And so with growing up being in love with the Fifth Doctor, and then wanting to become an actor, and then eventually he found his way to the show Doctor Who and became the Doctor, the Tenth Doctor. Five times more than his favorite Doctor, right? So, in Series 4, there's an episode called The Doctor's Daughter, where Donna and Martha um, 
are with Tenant. Ten, if you will. Like, ten Tenant? Like, it couldn't have been more perfect. But anyway. And they appear to be underground in the middle of a war between the Hath and I don't know if there's a name for them. They're like tribe, if you will, but essentially it's just a bunch of humans versus the Hath, which are like fish people. They really don't know why they're fighting, but they've been fighting forever, trying to get to the source, which essentially they believe to be the um, their creator or something like that kind of their god myth mythical god but anyways when you're being processed by the humans in that society you put your hand into a machine and it takes a tissue sample and replicates it essentially making a clone from your skin from your blood from everything and they shove the doctor's hand in that machine and they make a clone of the doctor. Not an identical clone, but just essentially a a related fuck it, they clone the doctor. And essentially what you have is the doctor's daughter. She was made from the doctor. And the girl who plays the doctor's daughter is Georgia Moffat. Now, the doctor's daughter, Georgia Moffat, is Peter Davison's real-life daughter. So the fifth doctor, played by Peter Davison, had a daughter, Georgia Moffat. And in this episode, the doctor's daughter, Tennant, has a daughter made from his DNA, played by Georgia Moffat. So the doctor's daughter is five, Five's daughter, okay? I'm speaking slowly so that you understand. Not only is the doctor's daughter the doctor's daughter, but the doctor's daughter, Georgia Moffat, ended up marrying David Tennant. So the doctor's daughter married the doctor. Which sounds incestual, but Georgia Moffat married David Tennant. So, not only is David Tennant's daughter, David Tennant's character, the Tenth Doctor's daughter, Jenny, Georgia Moffat, her name's Jenny in the show, I know I'm confusing the hell out of you, not only is Georgia Moffat the Tenth Doctor's daughter, not on, not only does she play the Tenth Doctor's daughter, she is Peter Davison, the Fifth Doctor's actual daughter. And then married David Tennant, the Tenth Doctor, making her the wife of the Doctor. And Peter Davison, the Fifth Doctor, is now David Tennant's father-in-law. So not only is David Tennant such a brilliant actor in the role of the Doctor, his life is essentially one big Doctor Who episode. Right? And that just blows my mind every time I say it. I've explained that so many times to so many people. And it sounds so fucked up, but it's just amazing to me. I get a kick out of it every damn time. And I'm completely so far away from what I was talking about that I'm not even sure where I began. 
but let's pretend I, I do um, know what I was talking about. I, I can't even pretend like I knew what I was talking about. So, David Tennant just brought so much to the character. Now, they have the 12th Doctor come in, and part of me is a little suspicious to whether or not he's the actual Doctor. Only because, all of a sudden, ever since Matt Smith, you know, was... was announced that he was done playing the Doctor after the Christmas episode, that he was going to be regenerating. Um, everybody's been talking about who will the next Doctor be. Doctor Who, right? So, my theory is that they brought somebody in to be the 12th Doctor until then. Not saying, I mean... Part of me believes that he's going to be the 12th Doctor. Another part of me is so suspicious that he's not. Only because, like, you have everybody in the world who lo who watches Doctor Who. It's the longest-running science fiction show in the history of, of television. There's bound to be at least one person on every continent. I mean, granted, that's seven people. But there's just so many fucking people watching the show... That that's just as many people being like, who will the next Doctor be? Who will the next Doctor be? And me, personally, I didn't care to know who the next Doctor would be. Because you'd find out anyway, right? As soon as Matt Smith regenerated, you'd find out who the next Doctor will be. So, since they announced that Matt Smith would be regenerating and leaving the show, so many people had been speculating who the next Doctor will be. Simon Pegg, Hugh Laurie... Not Tom Hardy. I was thinking of Tom Hardy. Carl Urban was brought up once. Not officially, just a lot. Of, so many people speculating. People were like, bring back Tom Baker, bring back David Tennant, which would be just impossible. I wouldn't even know how they would explain that in the show. But anyway, the only way to get people to stop doing that and to stop coming up to you being like, have you picked the next Doctor? Who will the next Doctor be? I don't know why that voice came out of my mouth. But anyway, the only way to stop people from doing that is to say, yo, okay, we got the new Doctor. And here he is. So today they revealed that it's him, Peter Capaldi. And I'm not saying he's not going to be the Doctor. I'm just saying I'm a little, you know, I'm not putting all my eggs in one basket. Because they could easily just do that. I mean, if if Stephen Moffat is casting by himself, or if, if Stephen Moffat and whoever did the casting casted David Capaldi as the 12th Doctor... Oh, fuck that. Let's pretend that it is a setup. At least Stephen Moffat and Peter Capaldi. Those will be the only two people who would need to know that this was all a hoax. That they were actually casting the 12th Doctor secretly, right? And I know this sounds like a conspiracy theory, but just hear me out. 
Those would be the only two people to know. A, because if Peter Capaldi signed on to be the 12th Doctor and then Stephen Moffat was just using him, that would be a real dick move, right? But if Peter Capaldi agreed to it, then he would know what he was getting into and he would, essentially, if he agreed, then he would know, then he would be okay with it in the end, right? So Stephen Moffat and Peter Capaldi would literally be the only two that needed to know. Then, everyone else who was casting or involved in the process, they would all think that he's the 12th Doctor, right? Because essentially they don't have to start filming until, you know, after the Christmas special airs. Or at least later in the year. They don't have to start filming the new episodes now. They, they're... Trying to finish up the 50th, and uh, they probably already finished the 50th, but they're trying to finish up the Christmas episode, I'm sure. There's only two episodes that are coming out at the end of the year, and then the new series season will start up uh, probably in, in April or something like that, like it usually does. So they have time to film episodes. I wouldn't be surprised if they were just using Peter Capaldi to say, here's the 12th Doctor, stop asking, do what you will with the information, but, you know, because once they say, this is the 12th Doctor, everyone stops looking for who the next Doctor will be, until he says that the 12th Doctor's leaving. You know? But, that that's the one side of me. And, like, they said, we're looking for the 12th Doctor, and then we found the 12th Doctor, and now we're going to reveal the 12th Doctor. It seemed a little convenient. For me, that they decided to reveal it all of a sudden, why would they do that? Like, is it because the show became so popular so quickly? Like, rather, became popular again? Because it was, I mean, it was overshadowed in the in 63 by the JFK assassination, but it had enough withstanding to last, you know, seven doctors. I mean, without counting, like, Seven Doctors before the hiatus, and then a TV movie that I'm pretty sure didn't do as well, but enough talk and, and, and interest to bring it back up in 2005 when CGI was sort of, you know, pretty good at that point. I mean, it, in the show, I still think, I stand by this, but in the Series 9, all the bad special effects, and even in Series 10, and granted, you can easily point out what special effects, like what's CGI and what's not. But I think Series 9, the special effects are intentionally not great. But also, that's they're intentionally not great to give some callback to the original series. Because those were pretty practical effects, I'm sure. And most um, special effects were really in the primitive stages. So they were doing a callback to that, but at the same time, what they had at their advantage was the fact that the CGI wasn't really mastered at that point. Now, Avatar didn't come out in 2010 until 2000, oh, 2009. And I would say that... Uh, shit, I don't even know. I don't even know what... Um, not that CGI was out before that, but... Really? The Lord of the Rings. Wow, 2001. 
Alright, so special effects were... I mean, they were just becoming more realistic, I guess, in my opinion. Not, I mean, you had Star Wars in 99, and... I mean, you can't really count. I, I'm, I'm saying, like... Because, obviously, you had, like, Jurassic Park and, and Terminator. There were CGI characters in that. But CGI was sort of becoming more more used, more slowly becoming more sophisticated in the early 2005, in, in the early 2000s onward, and it's been pretty finalized now. I'm sure it will only get better, right? Or it'll just stop altogether, but in terms of quality, becoming more realistic. But my point was, because it wasn't, you know, super high-tech at the time, um, that they ha they they had that to their advantage. They didn't have to put all their stock into CGI because it could be bad, only to bring back on board all the people who liked the special effects from the from its heyday back in the in '63 and onward. Now I might sound completely um. I might not be making any sense to any of you out there, but these are just my thoughts on like series series one of two thousand in two thousand five. I just feel like it was intentionally not perfect. I mean, it was. You know what? Fuck it. Moving on. So I don't. I don't even know where I started with that. But you have the twelfth Doctor who I'm not so sure is the actual 12th Doctor, but at least now, Stephen Moffat doesn't have people coming up to him, and I mean, granted, I don't know how much he walks out in the BBC public because of how many characters he's killed. Very great characters that he just destroyed by death. I'm not saying he's a bad writer. A lot of people don't like Moffat. A lot of people didn't like Russell T. Davis, Davies. You know what? If the show is still good, or if there's still parts of the show that you like, just be happy. It could completely turn to shit one day, and then you not watch it at all. But at least you'll have these episodes. So just be happy that you have it now. Or you'll make the argument, I'd rather not have it than have it go to hell. Well, sometimes things do go to hell. And then what? I'm just kidding. I have no idea what I'm saying. But anyways, back to the 12th Doctor. Now, even though part of me thinks that they are just putting him out there just so that, uh... I mean, they've never revealed who the Doctor would be. When Eccleston left, they didn't, they didn't put on a show being like, I mean... It had just come back, so they wouldn't do that. But even David Tennant, everybody loved David Tennant. Or a, a large portion of the fan base loved David Tennant. And none of them, they didn't put on a show for him when he was leaving. At least to my knowledge, maybe they did. Maybe there was a clip out there somewhere of them revealing who the next, who the 11th Doctor would be. Because it had gone on for four, five years at least since its revival before they changed out Doctors. 
And then they had Matt Smith, who nobody knew. And maybe they're only revealing the 12th Doctor because uh, uh, he has a bigger fan base. Or he has more presence out there in the acting community. I don't know. But anyways, back to why I think that he's going to be a good Doctor. Well, I saw a few pictures of him, like I said, and he kind of just fits the part really well. I haven't seen him act the part, but the style, his style, his his attire, at least in the few... He was wearing suits, and essentially the Doctor has always been sort of a suit guy. At least Blazer, I mean, then you had Eccleston in a, his leather jacket, but he's always been like... I don't know, he, he's never worn t-shirt and jeans, so he's always been pretty classy. He's He's sometimes referred to as the Professor. But he's the doctor, so don't make that mistake. And I saw him in in what looked like it was what I would call a David Tennant knockoff, only because David Tennant is um, um Only because when David Tennant became the Doctor, he, his wardrobe kind of became his wardrobe. Like, nobody else in the world. I don't know. Oh, shit. Sorry. Ad came up. Um, That it became his, like, when you see a blue suit or a blue suit red sneakers, blue suit, brown coat, any combination of those things, you think David Tennant, if you've ever seen his attire. And I've seen Peter, Peter, ah, fuck, I already forgot his last name, DePaldi? Yeah, let's say that. I saw him in a blue suit, with a t-shirt underneath, and he kind of looked like David Tennant, but with the face of William Hartnell. Which, to me, is pretty cool, having... And I, I know a lot of people are like, Why is he old? I didn't want an old Doctor. I thought all the Doctors were getting younger. Well, in order for the show to continue realistically, even if it doesn't end with 13 Doctors, in order for the show to continue in the future, they have to bring back an old guy so that they can start making them young again, you know? And they're not gonna... They might, they might very well rotate between, like... I don't know how old he is. Let's say he's in his late 50s, early 60s. Then you have like a 30-year-old, and then a 20-year-old, and then a 40-year-old, and then a 20-year-old again. Like they were, they could do that, or they can bring back an old guy and then gradually decrease his age as he continues. Because one of the things I love about Doctor Who is that essentially, and I don't know the ages of any of the other ones really, I'm only going by what they look like, but he's gotten younger each time, which completely parallel or parallels his getting older in looks, or his getting younger in looks parallels his getting older in age. And to me that was always cool, because even though Matt Smith was 27, 28 years old. He had a thousand plus years on the clock. 
to me that was just so amazing his, his his face was so young but his soul was so old and so they can't make him a 20 like a, a 19 year old because nobody would watch that shit I wouldn't want to watch a 19 year old try to save the universe because 19 year olds are stupid even if he is a thousand years old a 19 year old would just the universe would be in peril and nobody would be able to fix it and I know, even though his face is different, he's still the doctor, but just personally, I, I couldn't put my faith into a show. I mean, maybe 19 would work, depending on the 19-year-old actor. But the, that's the thing, it would be the actor you'd be putting your faith into. Matt Smith brought so much to that character, as, and he's 27 or 26, I, I, 28, I don't know how old he is. I could look it up right now, I'm in front of my computer, but fuck it. He brought so much to that character that I didn't care how young he was. I mean, I liked that he was young. I, I, all the fangirls love that he was young because fangirls are fucking crazy. Sorry if any of you were listening. Probably not because I don't have any fangirls. I have one, maybe. But I know she don't listen to this shit. And I don't blame her because she can get this not digital. She can talk to me whenever she wants. And to hear me ramble on for 30 minutes about Doctor Who it's probably not something she wants to do and I don't blame her but anyways so when they decided to go with an older doctor I was like alright that means not only does he fit the part real well but that means that they can start gradually bringing back a younger character and a younger actor Gradually, until they run out of ideas or something, or they make them a woman, which I'm sure 13, making them a making the doctor a woman is not. I mean, it was rumored earlier, and it's highly possible to go from male to female as a time lord. I mean, because then you would have a hero uh, become a heroine. And a lot of the girls in the fan base, I mean, sh when, once they close, I mean, not that I'm against it, but once they close down the River Song um, storyline, once they kind of, you know, ended that properly, which I thought they did very well, I mean, I would really love to see her in the uh, 50th with David Tennant and Matt Smith. That probably won't happen. It would be really cool, and it would explain, like, how when she gets David Tennant's Sonic, but it's fixed, and it's... My theory on the Sonic was that, um, in the 11th hour, when Matt Smith's Sonic... Well, formerly David Tennant's Sonic, Matt Smith's Sonic, it's it's faulty, it, it breaks, it, it's on the fritz, whatever you want to call it. And it's shown, and it's like all blown up. I think he drops it. He either drops it or he puts it in his pocket. My thoughts on that was that he did that because the silence in the library from this moment wasn't too far from that, that episode. From the episode, I don't know how long it was between, you know, in terms of days that the Doctor has lived, but... My thought was always he took that Sonic because he got a new Sonic. He didn't need the old one, but he might keep it, you know, 
because one day he's going to need to give it to River, right? And we never saw her and him at, at uh, not, not the picnic at Asgard. I can't remember when she gives him the Sonic, but she mentions a specific moment when they she was given the Sonic by the Doctor. And my thought was always that he took the 10 Sonic that was broken, repaired it, fixed it, he, he couldn't extend it anymore because it was broken, so he made sure it shut properly, and then, you know, put dampers on it, everything he needed to give it to her so that she could be saved by the 10th Doctor in the, uh, and, and David Tennant says, because I had years to think about it, so, he's a new man, he has his old Sonic, makes it for her, gives it to her, and then she goes off to the library knowing that it was her final days but not really final days right so it would be very suspect that he would give it to her in the 10th the 10th in the 50th anniversary right if she was going to be a part of it because in the last episode the name of the doctor you saw what happened to river right or I mean, there's still there's a there's a slight difference between ninth Sonic and tenth Sonic. Somewhere along the line, they get well. I think it gets broken, or he fixes it, or something. So there's a possibility since David Tennant meets Matt Smith that he'll take the old Sonic and give it to Matt Smith, or he, Matt Smith asks to borrow it or something so that he can make the New one, there's so many possibilities. So the 50th anniversary is going to be so amazing just to see both Doctors up on... I mean, I haven't seen it, but the fifth, doc the five Doctors, rather, where all five Doctors meet each other. I bet that was a brilliant episode. And I, I read a little article about David Tennant talking about working with because John Hurt's also going to be in the episode. He's not the Doctor, but he's the Doctor. Before he's the Doctor. I don't know what you want to call it. But, yeah. I just... He said, like, uh... Usually the Doctor leads every scene. Any any episode, the Doctor's in in the foreground. It's It's all about him, and he's trying to figure out what to do but now he has to share that light with two other guys it's gonna be it's gonna be different but it's gonna be pretty brilliant and I know Matt Smith and David Tennant well I've seen them in an interview which isn't the same as seeing them interact off off camera but they seemed like they just went the weather they went the weather they went together so well I just I'm so excited for it so, I'm hoping that they'll explain the, the River Song Sonic in that episode. If not, it doesn't matter. Everything else of that episode were... Oh, the other theory I had was that there's a lot of people wondering if it's actually going to be the 10th Doctor or if it's going to be the clone of the 10th Doctor that lives in, the, in Pete's world with Rose, right? Because essentially, if you're having Rose and the Doctor meet the 11th Doctor, 
there's a good chance that it's not the Tenth Doctor, because he would remember it, right? He would remember seeing himself, but time can be rewritten. People forget that. Anyway, so if it was the Clone Doctor, he has been on Earth all this time. He's been aging, which would explain why David Tennant's older instead of younger. Um, but he's been on Earth all this time, you know, with Rose. And he's needed a Sonic. He doesn't have his Sonic. David Tennant has his Sonic. The Tenth Doctor has his Sonic from when he left. <laughs> so he made a, a man-made Sonic. Um, on Earth. Using parts he found. Which is, is similar to Ten Sonic. From his, like, like, what he remembers of it. But there's certain things that he couldn't get it to do because he didn't have the technology. But since he's a brilliant mind, he pulls together pieces from Earth and makes a new sonic screwdriver, and then River gets it. But anyways, enough enough of that talk. I'm just happy that the show has been doing so well in my opinion, regardless if you like Stephen Moffat or Russell T. Davies or any of the people who wrote any of the episodes, regardless... I think the show is really strong and is continually being strong, being improved upon all the time. The Name of the Doctor was an amazing episode in my opinion. You might think differently, but whatever. Now, that was that was the big news for today, which I again, I didn't really want to know. I wanted to be surprised. Fortunately, in the world of the internet, that's not something that can be done, right? So recently, I was in New York City. If you haven't seen the photos I posted, that's fine. Um, but my girlfriend and I went there. She was being... She was auditioning for The Voice. And if she's listening, I'm not trying to boast about you, but I think it's pretty cool and you should be happy, proud rather um yeah so we went there the whole thing was like we were going to New York City for the voice but it was also an excuse to go to New York City because I had never been and that's her favorite place to be in the world um I'm sure apart from with me right but I went there for the first time and it was just so amazing not only did my girlfriend let me go like not only suggest, but let me go into toy store upon toy store, into candy stores, comic book shops, bookstores. Just, it was amazing. I did. I told her I didn't really want to do like the whole sightseeing thing, or to see the Statue of Liberty, or to see the Empire State Building. There, there's time and there's a lot of time in the world for that, right? I just wanted to go there, pretend as if we were living in the city, and we would do the normal things that we would do. And so one of the first things she, she suggested, well, one of the very first things she suggested was that we go see a show. Now, she gave me an option between Avenue Q, which is like a puppet musical, and The Phantom of the Opera. She said I would really love Avenue Q, but I know how much she loves Phantom of the Opera. And plus, I had never seen it. I saw the movie... Um, which she's told me 
so many times is not it doesn't justify the musical itself and she's right it doesn't so we got free tickets um in row D which is like four rows from four rows from the first row i mean a b c d right um so and they, they were dead center seats so if you've ever seen the show before you if you know anything about the phantom of the opera there's um part involving a huge chandelier um lot 666 as it were um and it goes right over our heads and then falls right over our heads back down on stage at, at another point. So that was amazing. The whole show was really awesome. I mean, I'm anytime I see a show, since she's a, a musical theater major, um, I've, I've seen it in a larger amount of shows than I probably would have otherwise. But I don't regret it. I, I, every show that we've seen, I have enjoyed thoroughly. And one of the big things about the shows is all the special effects, or the scene changes, or the set dressing. All that stuff really intrigues me, because I'm a real... I love special effects. I mean, you can go back to the Evil Dead. I know, that's one of the things I talk about, so it's appropriate, right? The Evil Dead, the original, so many practical special effects done in so many genius ways. The whole... My favorite special effect is is literally the easiest one to achieve. And if you've seen the Evil Dead, it's you the the uh, spirit that lives in the woods, that effect where it's like and then it cuts and then and it's literally just the camera moving through the forest. That is done by putting the camera onto a plank of wood and having two people run with the camera, like holding each one end of the wood and literally moving it through the forest. One of the easiest effects to pull off and one of the most effective effects. So when we saw the Phantom of the Opera, one of the big things that intrigued me were the, the effects because there's a lot of, like, the Phantom... Because the Phantom sort of, you know, um, there's a... As, as she said, a magical element to it, which is kind of lost in the movie, and it's it's more like technical, like he's, um, like there are real life practical things that he can do to make it appear as if he's a phantom rather than just a guy who lives under the theater. But in the show, there's more. There is more of a magical element, so there's a lot of like dropping smoke pellets and, and disappearing from one part of the stage to another, and it's just tremendous. I love the show very much. And to be so close for my first time, and for her favorite show, it was it was just spectacular. Now, there was another place we went to to eat. Um, the Jekyll and Hyde Club, which she told me about, and it just sounded really really cool and and there's some pictures on my facebook if you want to check it out essentially it's it's as the name suggests Jekyll and Hyde it's based around the characters characters or character depending on which what your life perspective is um if the glass is half full or half crazy but 
the it, it's a whole restaurant and it kind of set up like um it's it's the haunted mansion meets TGI Fridays as I described it because there's a bunch of portraits on the walls right and they um the eyes are cut out of the paintings and there are these animatronic fake eyes behind it as if somebody's looking through the the thing and the eyes are moving like back and forth and they hang up like right above your table and there's tons of them the bat the hallway to the bathroom first of all there i didn't even know where the bathroom was there's like this huge fireplace like huge mansion sized fireplace and in the wall of the fireplace like not directly against the back wall but like on the side wall it opens so that's the hallway to the bathroom and then the hallway to the bathroom looks like a, just a bunch of shelves with books on them they cut the spines off of so many books and glued them to the wall like as if there are tons of books on the bookshelf and then the bathroom doors are parts of those shelves that like open up into the bathroom and then if you go into the bathroom, the mirrors above the sink, some of them have faces behind them that light up. And then some of them, like, they return back to being just a mirror. Then there are so many animatronic statues all over the place. And then there's a little bit of a show during dinner. Like, we went, it was, I think it was 6 or 7 o'clock, maybe. Um, and they did the Dr. Frankenstein had had um an assistant and they brought frankenstein to life and there i have a few pictures from it but they did this whole show bringing him to life raising up the corpse of of frankenstein i mean it sounds disgusting but it, you can't really it, nothing makes you lose your appetite rather so they send the frank monster the frankenstein's monster up into the the ceiling and then simulated lightning and then they bring him down and then he rises it's really really cool and then the animatronic like statues that they have like zeus they just go off randomly or they have like um somebody with a microphone so they can kind of heckle the audience there was a huge there was a fireplace probably straight across from me with a huge elephant head hanging up on the wall as if like he as if the owner had hunted down an elephant and mantled the trophy up above the fireplace. That was animatronic, and it went off at one point by itself. And then another time, there was somebody with a microphone controlling the voice talking about people in the audience that they see. And then all the waiters are dressed up in really, like, old-timey clothes with, like, top hats, and it's just creepy. And then... um. There's paint. There's so many cool paintings all around. Not just the the eye paintings with the eyes, but there's this one painting where it's like an LED light portrait, and the, it's just a guy there with like a um, what those rounded hats, bowler derbies, a derby. I don't know, but. He's sitting there with his glasses, and he's just there. And then, if you give it some time, he vanishes in the picture, but all of his clothes still remain in the same place, as if he's like the Invisible Man, and then later he comes back. Or the other painting that's an, also an LED portrait, 
these uh, fake tarantulas crawl across the screen or his eyes blink. They close and they open. It, it's so, so fascinating. And before you even enter the building, you have this choice to go um, to take... There's two entrances. There's the entrance if you don't... If you just want to get into the building and eat. Or there's the entrance you can have a little bit more fun with. You enter a telephone booth. It's a black telephone booth. And it's an elevator that takes you into the... Um, into the restaurant. We didn't do that because we didn't realize the guy that was standing out front led us into the building through the regular entrance and not the fun entrance. So that was a shame, but we're definitely going to go back there. The food was pretty good actually. And it was right across the street from Fan of the Opera, which we saw at the Majestic Theater if that entices or intrigues anybody. Um so yeah, then we went to this huge bookstore. It was probably... Th every, everything in New York is like three or four stories. All the toy stores... Toys R Us was four stories and had a Ferris wheel in it. A candy shop in it. And just... It, it had... And there's pictures of it. A pretty life-size... It was probably... I want to say maybe 60% smaller, but a pretty life-size Tyrannosaurus Rex from dress like a dress. It had the Jurassic Park archway, and then the T-Rex in the building. But like I said, probably maybe 40, 40%, 40 or 60% smaller. Um. And then they had all these statues of, like, the Statue of Liberty made out of Legos, or the Empire State Building made out of Legos. Um, but then we went to, we went to this bookstore, and they, anything you could imagine, tons and tons, it, it was like, I mean, they say, they say that the Library of Congress is the biggest library. I couldn't even imagine because this library, it, it, I mean, it wasn't a library, it was a bookstore, but it was huge as shit. I couldn't even imagine the, the Library of Congress. And then we went to Forbidden Planet, which, I don't know if you know, but I'm into comic books. And that place, not only did it have comic books, but it had movie memorabilia, movie props, just about anything you could a geek could want. Just amazing. And I, and I ended up picking up two comic books. I almost picked up Crisis of Infinite Earth. Crisis, it, the Crisis on Infinite Earth. They had the... Uh, would you call it an omnibus? No, I think an omnibus is reserved for all of... Uh, like, if there was a... I really thought an omnibus was like one story, but with all the issues in it. I could be wrong, but it is probably just a trade paperback. But I bought two trade paperbacks, both Batman, because I love Batman. One is A Death in the Family, and the other is Batman R.I.P. Now, I bought R.I.P. because... Oh, shit. It's a little warped there. Um, because it was written by Grant Morrison, he was one of the writers on it, and he's one of my favorite writers. 
Um, because I'm only, I'm, I mean, for all, if anybody out there that's really into comics is listening, I'm sorry if I don't get some shit right. But I'm new to the, to the world of co- comics. So please, take it easy on me. Try to encourage me or inform me in a positive way about what I'm saying that's wrong. And correct me so that I don't fuck up in the future, right? So, let's start with Batman A Death in the Family. Now, I haven't read it completely yet. I haven't opened it yet. I mean, I know what it's about. I've heard about it so many times. And I'll read you the back of it, in case you don't know. A Death in the Family. In his ultimate showdown with the boy Wonder, the Joker teams up with the most unlikely of allies, Batman's readers. The year was 1988, the 50th anniversary of the Dark Knight Detective, and his fans had been given an unprecedented opportunity to decide the outcome of one of his most pivotal stories. The choice? Whether to keep the status quo of Batman and Robin, the dynamic duo, or return Batman to what he once was, a brooding one-man war on crime. A vote was held, the results were honored, and history was made. Following his most devastating defeat, Robin was killed and Batman was once again Gotham's lone protector. But what would the ramifications of this tragedy be? Would Batman become a more focused champion of justice, or would he dis- degenerate degenerate into a reckless vigilante, unable to recover from such a loss? These questions would be answered in the five-part follow-up story, A Lonely Place of Dying, along with the biggest question of all. Does Batman need a Robin? So, like like it said, um, this is the story where Robin dies. And if I'm not mistaken, it's the Dick Grayson Robin? This is the first incarnation of Robin, so it's... It would be Dick Grayson. Um... And they put this, they actually have the advertisement that they used during this time. Um, I'll read it off to you. Robin, Robin will die because the Joker wants revenge, but you can prevent it with a telephone call. 1-900-720-2660, the Joker fails and Robin lives. Or, 1-900-720-2666, the Joker succeeds and Robin will not survive. Um, so yeah, they had people call one number if they wanted Robin to die, or one the other number if they wanted him to live. And they ended up letting him die. So I'm so excited to read, read this story. And then they have, I think they have, the Batman story that they talked about, A Lonely Place of Dying. A lonely place of dying at the end of the book. So they, you get the five part, or you get the whole Robin, the death in the family storyline, and then you get the next part of the story, which is awesome. And it was only like 27 bucks, like with tax. And George Perez did the drawings for it, which I'm, and I'm, I'm seeing why. I was always told that George Perez was just an amazing artist. And I can see why, because this book is just amazing. 
so that's the one book. Now this other book I've I've seen so many times. I I really wanted to get. Um, oh shit. I really wanted to get, I, I couldn't think of how to pronounce it, Batman Cacophony and Batman the Widening Gyra. Still can't pronounce that one. But those were two comic books written by Kevin Smith. And, I mean, what could somebody who loves Kevin Smith want more than a comic book of Batman written by Kevin Smith himself? And for all those fuckers who, you know have their beef with Kevin Smith. That's fine. I don't care. <laughs> that's all that's all I'm saying. I just everyone has their own opinion. And I, I, I just come on. Anyway, like what the ha, ah, sorry. I just I'm just laughing. This is funny. So, Batman RIP. The Dark Knight's Darkest Hour. In mind, body, and spirit, Batman has trained himself to the peak of human ability. But even the world's greatest detective has his limits. And now, he has an enemy who knows exactly what they are. Not only has the Black Glove, this mysterious and lethal ad adversary has reached out to crush the Dark Knight completely. To fracture him beyond all repair, using the one weapon against which, has, which he has no offense. Defense his own mind. As Batman struggles to hold on to his sanity under the Black Glove's unrelenting assault, an unholy alliance of grotesque criminal masterminds is free to make its move on Gotham City and her protectors, unleashing the Joker to complete their perfect storm of murder and mayhem. To survive, and to save everything he holds dear, the Dark Knight must go deeper within himself than ever before. But once the truth behind the Black Glove is revealed, will the Batman ever be able to find his way back out? Dun, dun, dun. And then they have Batman on the back in a straitjacket, what looks like a coffin, so that's pretty cool. And then the last page looks like the Joker. I mean, they're... Ooh, um, I haven't really opened this one. I mean, I kind of did, but I... You know how you're never supposed to judge a book by its cover? I try not to judge a comic book by its pages until I've read them, you know? makes no sense but whatever um yeah the two stories that i've always wanted to read um cacophony and the widening gyra but widening dry i ask if somebody out there is listening and knows how to pronounce that please send me the phonetic pronunciation of it typed or just record your voice saying it leave it on my voicemail 412-266-2851 I don't care. Please, just... Just, uh... Tell me, because I, I would really like to know how to, how to actually pronounce it. But there are so many Batman stories that I want to read. Um, Joker stories as well. Mad Love with Harley Quinn. I'm pretty sure... Shoo, I'm pretty sure... Or is that an episode of? I'm, I'm fairly certain they made a, a comic book based on that episode, 
because Harley Quinn wasn't really introduced until the show, right? Until Batman the Animated Series. So, I don't know. Um, but yeah, and that's one story I would really like to read. I, I saw the Batman animated series is actually amazing. For those interested in Batman, I know it's a cartoon and whatnot, but there's some really, really excellent stories in there. And as far as the graphic novels go, um, I mean, you have the Arkham Asylum storyline, which I haven't, I started reading. I have a digital copy of it. I don't have the actual book, and I'm contemplating whether or not I should buy the actual book. But, I mean, the, on, the only reason these I know a little bit about Batman is because I've heard, like, on comic book men or just people I've talked to, what stories were great to read. So, yeah, I've read, like, The Dark Knight Returns and The Killing Joke, and I'm not saying that I'm basing my fandom off those books. Like, I know everything there is to know about Batman just because I've read the few that everybody's read, you know? Because, but those books, like, there's a reason why those books are so well-loved. And if you read them yourself, like... I don't know. I can't. I can't explain them. They're just incredible. So, like the the Killing Joke, the Dark Knight Returns. Um. Fuck. I can't think of the other ones I've read. Uh, there there haven't been many, but Arkham Asylum. From I've read like half of it. Um. And for, if anybody even has suggestions on what ones I should read next, please. Please do. Uh, year One, that, that was another one. I don't know if they made a Doom, uh, the Justice League Doom, into a comic book. Or if they made it from a like if they made the animated movie based on the comic book, but that story was fantastic. Doom, I mean, first of all, any Batman voice actor out there, my of of any Batman voice actor out there, my favorite is Kevin Conroy, because he is just Batman. He's Bruce Wayne and Batman, and he just tweaks tweaks his voice a little bit. Like you have Christian Bale, who goes way over the top, and and, and in The Dark Knight Rises, that scene where he's on the roof with Catwoman, and then all of a sudden he's by himself, and he still does the voice. Which a lot of people point out, like, I, I've always hated that voice. The Christian Bale Batman voice. And the thing is, Kevin Conroy has the perfect Batman voice, and then he tweaks it just a little bit, and he's Bruce Wayne. Not a, not a lot. Probably as he tweaks it as subtle as Clark Kent takes, takes on and off his glasses. Like, that distinction so subtle and so simple that subtle change is what Kevin Conroy does with his voice I know I'm comparing him to a fictional character Superman but st still like 
Well, no, no. I'm talking about Kevin Conroy's Bruce Wayne and Batman. The voice distinction so subtly, so changes so subtly that you buy into that they're two different people. You know that they're one person, but you just believe that they're two people. And then recently at the exchange, my place of employment, um, we just got a shipment of comic books in, and every now and then, they, they only they have comic books for a dollar. So every now and then, I shift sift through them and try to buy a few. Even though I haven't read the others, I try to buy a few and see what I can get. You know, they're only a dollar, so I'm not expecting much, but. I found World's Finest Superman and Batman number like 246 or something like that. 251. Um, I, um, the thing I love about the actual comic books, like not the trade paperbacks, the trade paperbacks are cool for the stories, but the actual comic books, what I love is just the cover artwork, really. Um, then I bought an Action Comics Weekly Green Lantern 602. It says plus Blackhawk, Wild Dogs, Secret Six, Dead Man, and Superman. Green Lantern learns the meaning of fear. And then I bought the Incredible Hulk Marvel Comics Presents 45. All these are just only bought them for a dollar, but so so worth it. So, yeah, when I went to New York City, we, oh, shit, I forgot. Um, we also went into uh, FAO Schwartz, which also is has a uh, candy shop in it, FAO Schweetz. So, like, if you're going to the city and you're as big of a kid as I am, just any, probably any and all toy stores have a candy store in it also. But I literally felt like a kid in a candy store. They had a huge, first of all, they had a bunch of um, boxes, like cereal box size, of like gummy worms. And like on the side of it, it would have like the new, like a fake nutritional facts. And it was like 40% happiness, 30% craziness, wackiness, or whatever, and then, like, without milk, serving suggests one box, or something like that, and it's just, they had this huge box of nerds, they had yard, a yard, three, three yards, or just a yard of Twizzlers, like, just an amazing, amazing thing there, and I really would like to go back, but that's just me. If if you go there, Forbidden Planet's definitely a place to check out, and Midtown Comics. And also, if you're a fan of, I know I'm a DC guy. I li I like Marvel too, but I'm a DC guy. Um, but if you like Marvel, there's a wax museum in Times Square that's now doing um, superheroes, Marvel superheroes, because. If you think about it, a lot of Marvel superheroes are based in New York. Go figure. Such as the Avengers was in New York when they destroyed the city and saved the world. 
I'm not saying, like, they destroyed the city. What dicks? They saved the fucking world, right? Well, Iron Man did. Um, nah, they all did. That's why they're the Avengers. And Spider-Man's in New York, and... Just so many so many Marvel superheroes you didn't realize were just in New York. So they dedicated a part of the wax museum. I didn't go in to see it, but there's a huge sign on the outside. I mean, Morgan Freeman standing in the front. I'll wax Morgan Freeman, but, uh... But yeah, it was an amazing time in New York City. And I couldn't have been happier to go. One day, I hope that I can actually, you know, live there. I'd, that would be amazing if I could live there. And I would so work at Forbidden Planet because they have so much amazing shit there. Maybe by then I'll be experienced enough in comic books actually know what I'm talking about but that wraps up this week's Matthew Danko podcast don't call it that I'm your host Matthew Danko